All right. Well, good evening again. Uh, if you would be finding your way in your copy of God's Word to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, if you're like me sometimes and struggle finding books in the Bible, 2 Timothy is found, oddly enough, after 1 Timothy and right before Titus. So, this message tonight, <clears throat> oddly enough, uh, Brother Randy and I did not plan this, but this message serves as almost a, I don't know if it would be an, an opposite to or a continuation of, but this morning he spoke to us about dying in the wilderness, but tonight I want to talk about finishing well, which would be the opposite of going so far in the wilderness and stopping. I want to talk about finishing well. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is credited as saying, in this world nothing is certain but death and taxes. I know taxes seem pretty certain, especially this time of year they can almost seem imminent, but taxes can be evaded. I do not advocate that, but taxes are not certain. They can be avoided. We read in the Old Testament where Enoch and Elijah evaded death. Now they are the only two that we're aware of that are exceptions to the 100% mortality rate of the human race. Because even Jesus Christ died on the cross before he was resurrected. So for you and I, odds are pretty strong in our favor that we will one day pass away. Now, I know in our church lately we have seen this lot. I have never known a time when we've had as many funerals, not only of church members, but people who are close to our church. And uh, not even during the pandemic did we see such a, such a great number. And it's almost as if death has had sort of a in-your-face attitude lately. Like every time, I'm, I've been almost afraid to answer my phone the last several days. I mean, I'm thinking, what, what news is going to be next? But though it is an unpleasant topic to talk about death, we must face its reality. Now, if we're alive when the Lord returns, we won't have to die. And with that in mind, I say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I would... If he were to come back right now before I finish this sermon, that wouldn't hurt my feelings one bit. We would get to go on home and be with the Lord. But whether he calls us home or he comes and gets us, our earthly lives at some point will end. And we will enter into the Lord's rest. So with that in mind, when that time comes, whether it's closing our eyes in death or our eyes being open, seeing the Lord coming in glory, do you want to finish well? Tonight I hope you'll find encouragement in the words of the Apostle Paul here in 2 Timothy and that you will have a desire to finish well. So if you will, look at me or look with me at verses 6 through 8 of 2 Timothy 4. 
It says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What we read here is that the Apostle Paul knew his death was imminent, and because he had faithfully run the course that God had set before him, he had peace that he would finish well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you that you have given us, our, given us your word so that we can learn from it, study it, and share it with others. Father, tonight I pray that you will speak to each one of us through this message. Father, I pray that uh, I will be out of the way, that you will speak through me. Father, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want us to see tonight in verse 6 is Paul's death was imminent. He knew he was about to die. In the year A.D. 67, the Apostle Paul found himself in prison in Rome. While there in prison, he wrote this second letter to Timothy, which would end up being the last of his epistles. It would not be long after he wrote this that he would be martyred. But he was not writing a letter of woe is me to Timothy. He could have been writing and, and giving out all these pitiful statements, but instead he was encouraging the young Timothy to have hope in the face of persecution. Previously in verses 1 through 5, Paul had encouraged Timothy to preach the word, to be watchful, to endure afflictions, to do the work of an evangelist, and continue in the ministry. And now he is talking to Timothy about the hard times. He wants Timothy to finish well. The Holy Spirit had previously warned Paul that he would be arrested in Jerusalem and turned over to the Romans. We read that in Acts 21, 10 through 12, where it says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when they heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul did indeed go to Jerusalem, and he was arrested there under false charges. But as a Roman citizen, he had certain legal rights. So he appeared before several different Roman officials. He wasn't uh, given uh, proper uh, trials because of the false accusations. And as a citizen, he was able to appeal his case to Caesar. The Caesar in this case was Nero. Nero was a persecutor of the church. He was no friend of anyone belonging to Jesus Christ. And tradition has it that Nero had Paul beheaded. I guess you could say, lucky for Paul, that it was illegal to crucify Roman citizens, or he probably would have been crucified instead. 
In verse 6 of our scripture, Paul writes that he is already being poured out as a drink offering. And to us today, that's kind of a strange term, so we want to see what does that mean. Well, the Lexham Context Commentary says that the drink offering is an offering to God that is poured out completely at the altar as a total and absolute sacrifice. The priests appear to have no share in this type of offering. One should remember that offerings are understood as celebrations, although some celebrations are more somber than others. This is how Paul is describing the end of his own life. There is nothing more to give. It has been fully offered to God, and it is a sacrifice to celebrate. So Paul was considering his impending death to be an act of worship and offering to Jesus. It may be that if he were indeed to be beheaded, as tradition says, Paul may have had the image in his mind when he wrote this of his blood being poured out on the ground, much like the wine being poured out in the drink offering. But what we read is a tragic imprisonment and execution. Paul viewed this as a reason for rejoicing. So after his conver conversion to Christianity, Paul devoted the rest of his life to sacrificial service, and this was reflected even in his death. And we can say that Paul, both in life and death, did pour himself out for Christ's sake. So after we're gone, I wonder, will people be able to say about us that we poured our lives out for Christ? Paul further said that his departure was at hand. This word departure is the idea of loosing a ship from its moorings to allow it to sail away or to loose the stakes of a tent, the stakes that would be holding a tent in the ground. I don't know what you would call it, but whatever, whatever it is that keeps us in this life that binds our soul to our body, that was about to be loosed for Paul. You know, I'm reminded of the song that says, the anchor holds though the ship is battered, the anchor holds though the sails are torn, I've fallen on my knees as I face the raging seas, the anchor holds in spite of the storm. And that song reminds me of the Apostle Paul, especially where he talks here about departing and that this being a loosing for the ship to be able to go pulling anchor. And he had certainly been one who had been battered, who had been torn and been weathered by the storm. But it was finally time for him to pull anchor and go home. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 5, the Apostle Peter spoke of the putting off of his tent, which was a euphemism for death. Now, he was not putting off a cabin, a house, or a mansion, but he was speaking of shedding a temporary dwelling, a tent called his body. Nobody wants to live in a tent permanently. It's meant to be a temporary dwelling. And while the world seeks mansions and fortunes and all the pleasures that life has to offer, we as Christians merely lease the earth for a little bit of time for a borrowed tent. This is not our home. John 1.14, speaking of the incarnate Jesus, said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
literally dwelt here means that he tabernacled among us. Of course, the tabernacle was like a large tent that the children of Israel used in the desert before they had a temple. Jesus, was his earthly stay was not meant to be permanent. He came for a little while to do the will of the Father, and then he would return to heaven. Now, I'm not much of a traveler. I guess you could rightly call me a homebody. I enjoy one-day trips. I like to be back in my bed in my house at night. Um, I don't know why. It's not something that's developed as I've gotten older. That's just the way I have always been. I like to be at home. And I've been thinking back, you know, recently I went with Brother Randy to the Tennessee Baptist Convention in Memphis, and we had... Uh, you know, reasonable accommodations there. It was it was nice, and I've been on mission trips where we've slept on cots in church basements. Uh, I've stayed in cruise ship cabins as well as log cabins on dry ground. But in each instance, I had a bed or a cot, as the case may be. There was running water, food, showers, all the amenities of home except for one thing. It wasn't home. It was like home, but it wasn't home. And it seems that no matter how much I enjoy a trip or how nice the accommodations are, when it's time to go home, I'm ready to get back home. I don't know about you, but there's something about home. And so you see, we're each one living in temporary homes in these temporary tents called the human body. Now, I can't speak for everyone here tonight, but I'm definitely living in a fixer-upper. Um, but one day, that's going to be made right as well. But like Paul and all those of us, all those who have gone before us, we're going to shed this tent, we're going to pull up anchor, and we're going to head to our heavenly home. The reason I can say that is, for myself, I know that there was a time in my life when I repented of my sin, I trusted Jesus as my Savior, and I have security in that belief that my eternity will be spent in heaven. He has saved me from my sin, and as a bonus, I don't have to spend eternity in torment. Think about that. Jesus came to save us from sin, not from hell. But because we're saved from sin, we don't have to go to hell. So... Uh, for that, I am eternally grateful. I wonder if as the, the blade of the sword made its way towards Paul's neck, if he was reminded of what he wrote in Romans 8.18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I don't believe Paul had a death wish. I don't have a death wish. We enjoy life. But I look forward to eternity with my Savior. And leading up to that day, I want to live a life such that I finish well. I want to finish well. So how did Paul finish well? Well, looking at verse 7, I want to... Look at it, and our second point tonight is that Paul's faith was firm. 
Verse 7 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So it seems Paul was a sports fan. Uh, he used several sports metaphors through his writing, usually talking about running races, and we see two of them here in verse 7. The first thing he talks about is fighting the good fight. Now one commentator said that fighting the good fight could refer to any sort of competitive contest. I do not disagree with this, but knowing Paul's life, I think he was referring to an actual struggle or conflict. Uh, the reason I say that is he describes that in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in 23. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That doesn't exactly sound like your best life now, does it? So often we hear that today. God wants you to have your best life now. I think Paul would call that a heresy. You see, Paul was not a prosperity preacher, but he was a spiritual warrior. He had courageously stood before Roman officials and endured all these hardships that I had just read. The first beating would probably have been enough for me. But Paul continued to endure because he had a proper view of the struggle. And we don't always properly look at what our struggle is. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So although evil men and evil governments can cause suffering, they caused all of Paul's sufferings, Paul knew that they were only pawns of Satan, that our battle is spiritual, not against flesh. Paul put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and quickened his feet to deliver the gospel. And in tough times, he was able to stand and finish well. Next, Paul said he had finished the race. Well, what race was he running? In Acts 20, 24, he says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His race was the ministry that he had received from Jesus Christ. The course that Jesus had laid out before him was now complete. And how did Paul know that his course was complete? 
he knew this because he was being told by the Holy Spirit it was now time for him to die. If his course had not been complete, it would not have been time for him to depart. Now keep in mind, the race of ministry is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a race of endurance. If you try to sprint in ministry, uh, you'll pull a spiritual hamstring in no time. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need to pace ourselves and pace ourselves according to God's timing. Third, Paul knows that he kept the faith. Now he was not boasting, but he was reflecting back on a life well lived for Jesus. How does one keep the faith? Well, he had previously told Timothy in the same book, 2 Timothy 1.13, he says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So to be one who keeps the faith, to keep the faith as Paul did, is to be a guardian of the gospel. Now that's not just for pastors, but that's for all Christians to be stewards of sound doctrine. And boy, don't we live in a day of poor doctrine. Paul, Timothy, and all of us today have been entrusted with the greatest news of all time. And people around us are spiritually thirsting. It's our job not to keep secret the source of the living water. I believe fighting the fight, running the race, and keeping the faith can all be illustrated with the story of Olympic runner Derek Redmond. You've probably heard this illustration before, but I think it sums it up to a T. In 1992, Barcelona, Spain hosted the Summer Olympics. Millions of people watched the world's fastest runners compete in distances from 100 meters all the way to the 26-mile marathon. Derek Redmond of Great Britain was a semifinalist, a semifinalist in the 400-meter race. He was crouched and ready in his blocks. In the Olympics four years before, one minute before race time, Derek had made the agonizing decision to disqualify himself due to an Achilles tendon problem. Denied the chance to run, he watched from the sidelines. Now after four years of relentless focused training and several surgeries, Derek wanted this race more than ever. The official raised the starting gun, squeezed the trigger and the sound cracked through the air and the runners bolted from their blocks. Their arms and legs were pumping, their, each runner sprinted down the track, but 100 meters into the race, Derek's hamstring tore. He stumbled and fell to the track. The paramedics rushed onto the track and to assist him, but he waved them off. 
he got up and you could tell on his face that he was in agonizing pain with tears flowing down his cheeks but he he hobbled and fell again then he crawled once more he got to his feet limping faltering yet slowly pressing on with officials and cameramen crowding Derek turned the last corner then from out of the stands rushed a man wearing a cap just do it was lettered across its front pushing his way through the the mass of officials and onlookers he came alongside Derek and without hesitation he put his arm around the young runner no one pushed him away and this time Derek did not wave off the help instead he put his arm around the man his father supported by the bonds of affection strengthened by a relationship of encouragement and care the two men crossed the finish line together Derek Redmond fought through the pain he finished the race and he faithfully competed for his country on the world stage now brothers and sisters tonight I'm going to maintain that unless the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that your death is imminent your race has not been run your course is not complete your work in ministry for Jesus Christ continues are you still living in this temporary body anchored to this life I believe we all are if I pinch you and it hurts there is still race left to be run I'm not going to go around and do that tonight but um, I think you get the idea and it may be that some of us will cross the finish line with ease but most likely we will find ourselves limping and crawling toward the end in need help in need of help from our father in heaven to help us across the finish line and if we'll just ask he'll be there your brothers and sisters in Christ will help you we're all in this together so let's all finish well together thirdly in verse 8 we see Paul's reward was righteousness it says finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing the fight had been fought the race had been run and now all that remained was to crown the victor in the Greek games of Paul's day the prize for winning was a crown or a wreath made out of olive branches or garland and that would be placed on the uh, winner's head but just like our trophies today and our medals that we earn they're only temporal you know trophies tarnish medals tarnish none of them last forever but Paul was looking forward to an everlasting crown a crown that would not perish unlike the wreath the crown of righteousness is a 
gift from Jesus, our righteous judge, and not something we can earn. It's, it's not a prize for the winner. It's not a participation award. It is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So at salvation, we are made righteous before God. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if Paul and all Christians are already righteous at the time of salvation, why was he looking for this crown of righteousness at the finish line? Well, it signifies the once-for-all permanent state of righteousness. You know, we're righteous before God now if we're forgiven of our sins and we're saved, but we can still mess up. But once we cross the finish line, we gain that crown of righteousness we have God's righteousness for eternity. Tony Barreda notes that as Nero was declaring Paul guilty and condemning him to execution, Christ the righteous judge was about to declare him righteous. And the good news we see in this verse is that Paul is not the only one to be crowned. All the saved of all the ages who long for the appearing of Christ have a crown of righteousness awaiting for them too. But rest assured, only those who are truly saved will receive the crown. I read about a gentleman that was on his way to work and he lived in Illinois and he noticed some interesting signs on the SUV in front of him. The spare tire uh, mounted on the back had the words Texas Longhorns and an orange steer head icon on it. The trailer hitch displayed another steer head and had the word Texas. The license plate frame was bordered with the words Longhorns on top and University of Texas at the bottom. But for the guy behind him, something didn't add up. This license plate frame was around a Land of Lincoln license plate with old Abe Lincoln's picture on it. It was apparent that the SUV owner had obviously moved, but had not yet identified with, or had no plans of, changing identities with his new home. A sure mark of a Christian is a longing for Jesus to return. The mind and the heart are set on him. The unbeliever dreads the return of Christ whether they want to admit it or not. Do you believe that your eternal home is in heaven but your allegiances align with the world just like this driver who had moved, who had a new residence as we have a new residence in heaven but his allegiances have not changed? If that's the case, allow God to examine your heart. I like to put it this way, you can't do the spiritual hokey pokey. You can't put your hand in the world for a little while and take it back out at will 
If that is you, ask God to shake you all about and get your attention. Be who God has called you to be. That's what it's all about. So in conclusion tonight, the Apostle Paul had one of the most difficult yet most rewarding ministries recorded in Scripture, if not the most. After his conversion on the Damascus Road, he would do whatever, go wherever, and speak to whoever would listen for the sake of Christ. As he reflected over his life, Paul had no regrets regardless of the pain along the course the Lord had laid out for him. When he was beaten, Paul kept the faith. When he was stoned and left for dead, Paul kept the faith. When God did not relieve him of the thorn in his flesh, Paul kept the faith. And when he found himself in a, Roman's, in a Roman prison awaiting the executioner's blade, Paul kept the faith. And when the executioner's blade struck Paul's neck, and Paul shed his earthly tent for his home in heaven, there was no question that he had finished well. So I ask myself tonight, how will I finish? Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm going to heaven. And I'm secure in my faith and I'm secure in that fact. But how am I doing on the path God has set before me? Will I hear, well done, good and faithful servant? What about you tonight? If you're in the hearing of my voice, your race is not complete. Are you pressing toward the prize of the high calling, or are you on the sidelines? If there's breath in your lungs, there is an area of ministry waiting on you. You may not be as able-bodied as you once were, but that's okay. Paul endured persecution we know nothing of, bore stripes we have never borne, and continued to bring glory to God. So don't give up. Press on until the race is finished so that you may finish well. Jesus is at the finish line holding your crown of righteousness. And I dare say, if we do that, if we hold the course and we press on, we will not die in the wilderness. Now, if you're here tonight and you fear death or you fear the return of Jesus Christ, you need to be saved. Repent of your sins, trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you'll receive the peace and assurance that pass all understanding. Tonight could be the starting line for serving Jesus for the rest of your life. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the example of Paul that we have in Scripture. I pray that tonight we are encouraged that no matter what we're facing, whether people call us fanatics or Bible thumpers or whatever the term may be, God, that we will continue on the race you have set before us. That you will strengthen us to run the race, even when we don't feel like it. That even if we have to limp across the finish line with the help of our brothers and sisters and with your arm, around us.
Father, I pray that we will finish well. I pray if there's anyone here tonight that does not know you as Savior, I pray that this will be the night of salvation. And I pray that whatever decisions need to be made tonight, that, God, you will convict each person to do so. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open as we sing. If you would like to come forward and pray, you're welcome to. I'm here if you need to speak to me or pray, whatever. But whatever your need is, this time's for you. If you'll please stand.